Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Truth may be stranger than fiction, but my guest specializes in the latter. She's Laura McBride, author of the acclaimed contemporary novels, We Are Called to Rise and In the Midnight Room. Her novels are available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Laura, go to lauramcbrideauthor.com, and you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. What draws you to fiction? As we talked before the show, I'm a big nonfiction fan, and I, I think the last book of fiction I read was Portnoy's Complaint, so it gives you a sense of how far back that goes. <laughs> but, but I like to talk to people who enjoy not only reading, but in your case, writing fiction, very popular fiction. What draws you to fiction? What is it about the characters that you develop and the story that you develop? Well, it's such a good question. And I think the truthful answer is that I grew up no, in a I'd family. No, I'd rather have the fake answer. Give me the fake answer. <laughs> okay, the fake answer is... Um, <laughs> we should point out up... that you are a, a writing professor, so I want to catch you on these little things you do. The... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm going to say literally any second. Exactly. <laughs> I grew up in a family where stories were privileged and anybody who could tell a good story could get everybody's ear. And they were privileged in so many ways. My mother was a, she read a lot and she belonged to a book group and she spoke very highly of the intelligence of the people in her book group and the intelligence of the leader. And both my grandmothers could tell a really funny story and we all love that. And I think I had the idea in my large kind of talented family that the only thing I could also do was tell a story. I don't know if that was true, but it, it was definitely part of who I was in the family. And one of the things my mother said to me from the time I was young was that a novel was just as good a place to get the truth as anywhere else. And that always struck with me, the power of a story to, to reveal who someone is, to reveal why things happen, to give us questions, to sort of, you know, go, go to the deep parts of being human without being didactic and the ability of different people to go to the same story and find different things in it. And um, I find that endlessly interesting, fascinating, challenging. Well, it shows you how interesting we perceive things. When you were talking about privilege, I was thinking, meaning nothing was shared with you. And yet it was clearly the opposite meaning that you were mentioning. And yes. so clearly, from whatever my background is, I perceived it, that that's what you were talking about. You liked to write fiction because you weren't able to hear any stories growing up. But clearly, it was the opposite. It was, it, and it was the sort of the ability to sort of talk about your own day, but frame it as a story so that you would get a laugh or you would get a feeling from your audience. And that idea that not that you shape it in the sense that you make it fictional, but that you shape it in the sense of how you deliver it. Where does the information come in and what do you hold back? And all of that sort of playing with language and with the way that we imagine um, words in our minds was just part of my life from, from the earliest stages. And I always thought I was going to be a writer. And, you know, life happens and a lot of other things got in the way. And I'm a very practical person. I like to work and I like, and writing has this impractical quality if you're a novelist, which is that you don't get to control it. So if I want to become a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, 
to a certain extent, I can control that path. I can, I can go get the degrees that I need. I can work very hard and I can arrive there. But if you want to be a novelist, um, you can write novels, but to actually complete that loop, somebody needs to read them and you're not in control of that process. And I find that experience very uncomfortable, even at my age. I found it unacceptable when I was younger that I couldn't control it better. But I think it's a dilemma that many artists face. And maybe it's part of what spurs creativity. One thing you said, too, that struck a bell with me, and that is there are so many nonfiction books for people who have emotional problems or mental problems or psychological problems. And there are these tips and there are these suggestions and there's these insights that you can get from nonfiction books on it. It almost sounds like, from what you were saying, that a fiction writer can communicate some insights through fiction that might ring a bell with people who need some advice or help. Oh, that I absolutely believe that. And, and I'm also a big fan of nonfiction, too, because I, I'm, I'm autodidactic. I love to learn. Everything interests me. Really, everything. I can get taken away by any idea, almost. Well, I'm autocratic. Um, I refuse to read fiction. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know, after we had our conversation, I noticed there's a neurologist. He just published a book about maintaining our memories as we get older, and particularly working memory. And one of his five top pieces of advice is to read fiction, not nonfiction. All right. I'm right on it. I've changed my mind. (laughs) Well, there you go, Ira. I I may be autocratic, but I'm flexible. (laughs) Or in your case, practical. I like that term that you used (laughs) to. Yeah, that's the way to think about it. When you first started writing fiction, did you know your first novel was going to be as popular as it turned out to be? Or were you writing more for yourself and then the luck was that it became popular, and then you wrote your second novel. It was more like the second. What happened is I had a sabbatical because I teach at the College of Southern Nevada, and I had a sabbatical coming up, and without going into the whole long story, that was the middle of the recession, and my sabbatical plan fell through. And so I decided, well, I want to do something useful, and I've always wanted to write a novel, and I know it will never get published, but this is a good, creative, writing-oriented endeavor. And I'm just going to dive into it and do it for myself. And it's going to sit in a closet and someday my children will read it. And then through a series of surprising events, I ended up at a national writing, kind of a famous writing workshop retreat. It's actually an artist retreat called Yaddo in upstate New York. And while there, I encountered a writer who said, let me introduce you to my agent. And the whole thing fell into place very, very quickly. So that's a a really atypical experience, and it was very exciting and not replicable, probably. I tend Um, to agree because we hear people trying to get agents and trying to get books published for decades, and they have problems. Yeah, and and all those experiences I have had as well and, and continue to have at times. But in any case, that's what happened with We Are Called to Rise. And I think when I was writing that novel, if I'd known, if I'd had it in my head that a lot of people would read it or that I would ever stand up in front of an audience of strangers and answer their questions. I'm not quite sure what would have happened. I mean, I was, I was very, very loose in one sense, and I was very true to my own vision. I don't think I had the level of craft that I have now, but I did have this kind of passion for what I was saying. And I absolutely remember the very first time that I stood up in front of an audience of a few hundred people and they were going to have open questions. And I was sort of, oh, good, this will be fun. I like people. I like to talk. No problem. 
Um, and I stood up and it all of a sudden, the questions that people might ask me started popping through <laughs> my head. And I felt absolute sheer terror. And I had never looked forward to that because I had never imagined that it would be published. But in fact, it was published all over the world. And I got to do a lot of really fun things. And lucky me. Tell us about what the book was about. That first book was called We Are Called to Rise. And I am a Las Vegas resident and have lived here for a long time. And there had been an incident in the news a few years earlier in which the mother, a relatively young mother, an immigrant of several young boys was killed by a police officer. It was just one of these very unfortunate events. And I never forgot about it because I had met that woman several times. And when I was trying to imagine writing a book, that story kept coming into my mind. And I didn't want to use someone else's story. And I didn't know very much about the facts of that story. But I recognized the drama in it. And because I wasn't going to write the book for anyone else, I started to think about the child, the young child of the woman was, who was killed and the mother of the young police officer who killed her. And the story is really about those two characters and how they, and, and how they adapt to that event, which is not at all the true event, which I completely made up because I didn't research it, but it, it started with that little germ of an idea. And then because I was teaching at CSN and I had a lot of students who were soldiers who were going to Iraq and Afghanistan at that time, and I was very caught up in their experience, very young people going off to war, making very difficult decisions. I incorporated a young soldier as a third character. And then finally, I incorporated, she's not really a character in the sense that she changes. She's more like a narrator, but she's a social worker and, and, and a lawyer, works with children in Las Vegas. So that story is that. How do you know once you get the novel done? This is the part that's always fascinating to me. You had a series of lucky breaks, including getting an agent at that conference. But what was it about the novel that made it popular? Did you know that was going to happen? How does that work? Because that's a whole world that I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, I wish I knew. It was so shocking. What I was doing was I kind of blocked. I was such a novice myself, but I sort of blocked out how the novel might work. And I thought of, you know, I teach, I used to teach a playwriting class, play, uh, not a playwriting class, but a class on drama. And I thought about sort of a classic dramatic structure that the action climbs to a, some, to a climax and then it falls back down. And so I mapped out a 30 chapter book that would climb to a climax and then fall back down. And then I decided to use these different voices and then I just started on page one with the voice of the mother, and I wrote a chapter. And then I started page 25 with the voice of the little boy, and I wrote a chapter. And when I was writing in the voice of this eight-year-old immigrant child, I thought, this is the worst idea I've ever had to write in the voice of a child. But who cares? I'm not writing this for anyone but me, and I can't think of anything else. Um, and But as I was writing that little boy, and I, I, I thought this is terrible writing, but I was very emotionally moved myself by the, the thoughts that were coming into my mind as I imagined being this little boy. And about four chapters in, I, I gave it to someone I know very well and who asked to read it. And I steeled myself for how awful it was. And the only thing the person said to me is, do you have more? I need to read the rest of this. And I certainly didn't think it was going to be published or 
be a success at that point. But it was really like the first moment where I thought, oh, somebody wants to read this. What was that feeling like? And I hate to ask that question because it's such a trite question these days. But in your case, I think it's very important. What did that feel like to get that validation in your first novel from someone that read chapters and said, yes? This, I mean, it was this. it was really, really exciting. And I am a person with a lot of energy and I work really, really hard. And I like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a busy person. I have a full-time job. I write. I, I'm a busy, high-energy person. But at that point, all my energies went towards that novel. And because and I had this kind of structure. And then I, you know, just every second of my day, I was living, breathing, thinking about it. And even when I was doing something else, I was thinking, could that go into the book? How might that work? I think every creative person, whatever is the form of their creativity, would recognize that moment when it starts to click in you and everything feeds it. Literally every sensation that would come into my day, in, into my experience, would have some way of playing in my mind with the book. I think that's a kind of addiction that keeps one going, even when it gets really discouraging and even when things don't turn out or even when you can't have control of the process or every other thing that can happen is that feeling of being sort of on a creative role. It's just a very special human experience. I want it again. I want it every day. Well, I think you probably do get it every day. I hesitate to ask this question because I do ask it of every nonfiction author I've had on. But in this case, I have to ask it because it's so different. It's fiction. And you're basing it on a news story, but at the same time, it's fiction. What's your process? I hate asking that kind of trite question, but what's your process for research and writing? And do you devote half hour a day to writing at night or 15 minutes a day in the morning or three in the morning, you wake yourself up and write for two minutes? How does that work for you? I hate process questions too, because I'm so afraid of being boring. No, and, no, you know, no, my no. process is so interesting to me. Um, <laughs> no, I wouldn't ask it unless I was interested. So please If share. it's boring, you can cut it. Don't okay, worry about fair it. enough. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, I'm cutting it. No, so, go ahead. <laughs> so first on research, I mean, normally I'm inventing an, everything about a novel. But when you're inventing, your characters come from somewhere. They have certain experiences. They have pasts. They're different than my own. I don't know that information. And um, I am an academic, so I know what real research is. And I know the importance of having high-quality source materials and tracking your source materials. And that's not what I do when I write fiction. Instead, I can use this as an example. I have a character in my second novel, and she was she's Filipino, and she was raised in a rural area of the Philippines. And I kind of hoped that somebody would want to send me to the Philippines as, you know, novel research, but nobody did. So I didn't make it up. That's in the, in, the, in the midnight room. Yeah, this is in the midnight room. And um, it, it was hard and I was really worried about getting it wrong. And I did a lot of things, a lot of research in the Philippines and reading books and reading, you know, bad sources like Wikipedia, whatever it took. But what actually worked for me was I found this series of YouTube videos that was, it was a young missionary sending videos back to his family about his missionary work in this rural village. And what it would show me was what it looked like. And he would talk about what things tasted like. And he would talk about what were the ordinary parts of the day. And what, and I could hear the birds and I could see the trees and I saw how the rain fell and I saw how, what the houses looked like. And that gave me that imaginative world that I could then move from. So novel research 
it doesn't follow any of the rules that we should we should and must follow in nonfiction or academic research and academic research, yeah. but is more about for me about being able to mentally inhabit a place, a time. Just try to imagine seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching in a different way when you're in my own life. When you're working on a novel, you're living and breathing it because you said earlier, you're always thinking about it, even if it's on a subconscious level. So you're, what can I put into the story when I see something in my daily work or chores or whatever it is? Do you drive your family and friends crazy when you're in the middle of writing a novel because you're seeing something in them that you said, oh, I'm going to use that, or you share with them a little too much about what you're working on. So they say, okay, enough. We want to just go and have a nice meal without hearing about this novel. Well, I'm never going to admit to driving them crazy. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. I'm just sure you can. It's all right. <laughs> well, what I would say is that I don't think I overshare because I'm kind of shy about my writing and I'm always afraid that it's not working. So it's actually very hard for me to talk about it usually. I think I'm really difficult for my husband. And when my children were living at home, I think I was a little difficult for them. And I think what's, you know, it's hard to admit that, but because I care very much about them and normally I'm 100% as present as I can be with the people that I love. But when I am really deep in a fictional moment and really getting somewhere, I hate to be, I hate to be taken away from it. And even if I take myself out of it and I say, okay, I'm stopping at one o'clock because I have something else to do at two o'clock. I don't live that transition always easily. And, 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 you know, I'm not blowing my stack or anything. I'm just distracted. It's hard for me to get my attention somewhere else in a clean way. Well, um, I think that's great for people to get an insight. And, and, and it's not necessarily a self-conscious aspect of your life. It's really how fiction and nonfiction writers work on their material and how that affects people in their lives. So that's why I like to ask it, because it's, that's usually the case is when you're in a, it doesn't matter what the project is. It could be a thesis. It could be a nonfiction book or, in your case, novels. But clearly, the people around you, friends and family, do form a not a barrier around you to protect you from the outside world, but more as a, I would think, a feedback mechanism to a point. And then, as you said, you're not going to do it too much. Other authors and writers do it a lot. It's the nature of the beast, I guess, in that sense. I want to quote from the Denver Post because it was a nice blurb they gave you. It said, when Laura McBride starts a novel, her characters lead the way as she writes. And that's, that's a great little commentary on your work. Do you see it the same way? I, I had forgotten about that quote, but um, oh, absolutely. That's how it works. And it's, it's a strange experience because I think I'm inventing the character and I'm creating the story. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of intentional. I'm very intentional about that, how I want that to work and what the, I want them to do. But at the moment when I'm writing a scene and everything kind of goes scene, 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 all of a sudden, my characters have these pasts that I don't know about. You know, they have mothers who died or lovers that they no longer love or <laughs> a child who did something dramatic. Or, and I just go with that. I just let that character write that into my head. It operates. So there's this very intentional planning level that's at the top of your head or top of my head. And then there's all this other stuff that's coming up very fast, faster than I can know it's coming up. I've heard writers talk about it as if their characters are speaking to them from outside. And I know that that idea made me a little uncomfortable. It was a little too new agey for my taste. It's like a little, um, a, little like, I, a little like ghosts talking to yeah. you. Yeah. 
but until I experienced it for myself. And I don't experience it as voices coming from outside, but more like they're all competing for my intention and spilling out of me without me knowing they're coming. And this happens less often as I write more and more, but it still happens that I will be emotionally affected by something I'm writing. I might start laughing or tears will be, you know, pouring down my cheeks. And that's another reason that I think I can be difficult for my family is I like to be left alone because it's kind of, you're kind of in a vulnerable spot and it feels a little embarrassing if somebody sees you with tears pouring down your cheeks and you can't even explain it, but it's, you, you realize something about your character or something about what moves your character or something about what hurt a character. And then I feel hurt in that. And it's just a very exposed kind of raw experience at certain points, not, not all the time, but. Well, you'd be a mess if that was all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go back to a question because I realized you didn't answer part of my question from earlier. So it stays in my brain. And that is how much time do you devote each day to writing? Is it a set time? Is it a set point in the morning or in the afternoon? How does that work? Well, some of it is dictated by what's going on in my life. But when I am not working on a book, I don't write as a general rule. So I don't write every single day just to keep myself in practice. I don't think of myself as someone who has time to do it. But when I am writing a book, and now I have written four, I schedule out, this is going to be the five, six months in which I'm really working intensely. This is going to be the next four or five months when I'm drafting and revising. That's sort of the length of time it takes. And then ideally, I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'm going to take my dog for a walk. I'm going to exercise as hard as I can. And by 7.30 or 8 in the morning, I'm going to be working. And I want to work. I don't usually take breaks to eat. So I'm going to work as long as I can kind of physically take that till 12.30 or 1 o'clock. I'm feeling pretty fatigued by that point. And then I'm going to wake up and do that again the next day. And I'm going to do that every single day as steady as I can. And I resent interruptions. I'm really a pain. I, mean, I have to say, one of my friends always says, I had a hummingbird lost in my house and came desperately to Laura's and she refused to answer the door. because she." Was, and I was like, of course, I refuse to answer the door. You had a hummingbird. So it's roughly around four to five hours a day once you are on that path. But what I find fascinating is because a lot of people I talk to, a lot of writers, they will write because they were told to or they learned to, whatever it is. They would write every day, even if it was just a half hour, they would write every day to keep the muscle going, I guess, or the brain going. But in your case, you've got so many other things going, including teaching, which stimulates the brain. You don't really have to get into that kind of rhythm until you're, you have the project in mind. And then you're very, sounds like very organized. You plan it out. Okay, I'm going to be doing this for the next two or three months. Uh, that's how I work. I, I, I... Other writers might be smarter than me. To get up and do it <laughs> <day>. <laughs> um, yeah, but are they as successful? I mean, you've got the two novels. <laughs> you know, that are success well is a complicated thing. <laughs> I, I meant to ask you earlier, and I forgot. When your first novel got published, and it was clearly a success, but even before it being a success, what was like holding the book in your hands? Because it's different than a digital copy of the book in Kindle. It's different than a manuscript that's just paper. It's a bound book, professionally published, and you're looking at this thing. Do you think that as a result of this, because I think of that if I wrote a book, I'm now immortal? Oh, no, I don't feel immortal. I, well, your work I will mean, be immortal. Maybe that's... A I know. Person. I wish 
I wish that were true. I don't have any faith that, it, that they don't all get burned someday. Um, <laughs> well, you're not going to be Shakespeare. We understand that. But still, it'll be, it will be in the library somewhere, certainly the Library of Congress. I assume you know. Yeah, it is in the Library of Southern, Congress. That's a good point. Yeah, um, there you go. It's really, really exciting. It's a beautiful thing. The actual very kind of a funny story, We Are Called to Rise, was also published by another publisher in the UK and the Commonwealth countries. And so it was coming out, I, I can't remember now if it came out in the beginning of May or the beginning of June, but that UK publisher decided that they wanted to create this four book holiday set, the Christmas before that. And so my book wasn't really ready for publication, but they somehow sort of got permission to publish it in a different form with three other books. And one was red and one was yellow and one was blue and one was green. And they came in this boxed set and it didn't actually look like we are called to rise. But the very first thing that ever came to my door that looked like a published book was this huge British mail sack. I mean, it, I could have fit my whole body in it. And it was a big canvas bag. And this man came to the door and he was wearing something kind of odd. And he handed me this bag. I thought it might be a bomb. I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And I was sort of afraid to open it. It was enormous. And when I finally opened it, way at the bottom were these four books. Um, in a boxed set that came all the way from England. And I still have that, um, you know, amazingly weird bag that came <laughs> all the way from England were designed there, for a few hundred books. But that was the only thing in it were those four books. Those four books. That, that's um, that's and of fun. course, I also remember the day that you also get all these advanced copies, which are paperback copies that go out to reviewers and other people, and they have little mistakes in them. And you know, everybody annoying from your past life that you ever knew that gets a hold of one of those books calls up to say there's a typo on page 47. And of course, and you're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So by the time you actually get the real, beautiful, perfect book, you right. know, you're a little bit like, OK, I've <laughs> yeah, those proofs that go out are a little unnerving or it can be. Before I let you go, what are you working on now? I just finished a novel that I really, really love. It's about a woman who's a little older than I am. And it, back in the 70s, she danced in the Folie Bergère. And it's just really the story of her life right that minute with um, a young child, a woman that lives behind her. But it's also the story of her whole life. Her name is Marva. Well, we look forward to it. Many of my listeners will. I still have to get to your first book. So if I start reading fiction, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Let you, me know Laura. if you like it. Absolutely. Or if you can get through it. <laughs> That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Laura McBride, author of the acclaimed contemporary novels, We Are Called to Rise and In the Midnight Room. Her novels are available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Laura, go to lauramcbrideauthor.com. you got to get the word author in there, lauramcbrideauthor.com. And you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Laura, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Ira. It was really fun. It was. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.